The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. By the transgressions of a land, many are its princes, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, so it endures. A poor man who oppresses the lowly is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive with them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. He who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is the companion of gluttons humiliates his father. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it from him who is gracious to the poor. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding sees through him. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. Last week, you may remember from Philippians chapter 1, we saw that all believers are called to lead lives that show the worth of the gospel. Our primary task in the world is to live in such a way as to become advertisements that the gospel is more valuable than anything in the world. And then we saw that one of the ways you do that, one of the characteristics of life that advertise the infinite value of the gospel is the fearlessness of believers before their opponents. So it says, see that you walk worthy of the gospel, that when I come, I might find that you stand firm unafraid in anything before your opponents, walking worthy of the gospel, that is, magnifying the worth of the gospel, is letting it have such an effect on you in freedom and boldness that you are unafraid of your opponents, and that becomes a sign of the truth of the gospel so that those who believe are saved and those who don't are condemned. Now, what we find in verse 1 of Proverbs 28 is a confirmation of that truth. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. But the righteous are bold as a lion. So there's a correlation between wickedness and fear, even when there's nothing to fear, and righteousness and boldness. And the gospel is the truth that in Christ, wicked people can become righteous people and thus be bold as a lion. Now, in analyzing this verse, the first thing I want to do is try to get rid of a misunderstanding. Let me see if I can do that. I think it would be a misunderstanding of verse 1 of Proverbs 28 if you said simplistically, Wicked people 
never can experience anything like boldness. Or if you said righteous people can never experience anything like timidity. I think that would be an overinterpretation of a proverb. Now, why do I think that? Why do I say that the point of this verse is not that wicked people never experience anything like boldness and, and the righteous never experience something like timidity. The reason is because when you read the rest of the Proverbs and look up all the places where the righteous do this or that or the righteous have this experience or where fear is described and unrighteousness, you find things like this. In Proverbs 14, uh, 16, it says... The fool rages and is bold. And the word bold, be bold, is the same word as verse 1 of chapter 28. The righteous are bold as a lion. So fools can be bold and the righteous can be bold. Which causes me to think, like with so many Proverbs, you find this, that what is being said here in this verse is that in general, there's something about wickedness that kindles fear. And there's something about righteousness that kindles boldness. But it's not so absolute that there isn't the kind of boldness that the wicked can have. And there isn't the kind of timidity that now and then the righteous can have. And we all know that from experience. And we know it from the Bible that there is a reckless boldness that the wicked have, especially in the pursuit of their wickedness. Dirty needles. Promiscuous sex. Speeding. Reckless crime. It takes a lot of stupid boldness to do what many wicked do. They are not cowardly often in the pursuit of sin. They take manifold risks with their lives and their freedom and their eternity. So there is a kind of boldness that the wicked have. It's just not the kind that's being talked about in verse 1. The kind of boldness that's being talked about here is the boldness that's required in the atmosphere of justice. And there's something about wickedness that in the atmosphere of justice flees even when there's no one pursuing. And there's something about the righteous that is bold as a lion for the cause of justice. So it's not talking about this reckless kind of boldness. What is it about the wicked that makes them flee? When no one is pursuing. I think you know the answer to that. We can find it from the Bible. We can find it in our experience. The answer is a bad conscience. A guilty conscience. An evil conscience makes a person flee when no one is pursuing. When you see a police car. Is your first response gratitude? That there are. Law keepers. <laughs> when you play basketball or did play basketball or soccer or football, did the way you play affect the response you felt every time the whistle blew? 
When you're in a conversation, do you begin to defend yourself even before there's been any accusation or anything clearly said against what you think? Fleeing because you can hear an accuser where there may even be none. We flee when we're not being pursued because we have a bad conscience. There are a lot of things stored up in our lives, bad things that we have done that we have not made right. And a voice inside is telling us that someone is after us even when they are not. Guilt is the parent of fear. And our conscience is very creative. Conscience creates pursuers where there ought to be some and are not any. The biblical example of this that is most ready to mind is Adam and Eve. In the garden, they sin. They act wickedly. It is a wicked thing. To look at your father who says, I'll provide you with every need and take care of you and show you what's good for you and what's bad for you. Just trust me and turn away from your father and listen to his arch enemy and believe him and do what he says. That's wicked. And they did that. And now. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, not stalking in the garden. He was just walking in the garden like he always came to share, to enjoy fellowship with them. And something has changed. They have a bad conscience now. The breeze turns into a burglar. The shadows turn into ghosts. Police turn into adversaries. Parents turn into police. God turns into an enemy when they are not. Verse 8 says, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. He wasn't pursuing. He didn't have a gun. And he said, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden And I was afraid. And we've been afraid ever since. We've been afraid of him ever since. Why? Because we have a bad conscience. And it condemns us. Every breeze that blows, every leaf that skitters, every creak in the late night door, every whistle on the field, every shadow, every... Blinking red light. What's this verse teaching us then? It's teaching us that everybody in this room has a conscience given by God. A very precious emissary of truth. And our conscience is so committed to settling accounts when we've done wrong... That it will create pursuers where there are none in the hopes that we will yield to the imaginary truth. 
and make it right. A guilty conscience will turn shadows into phantoms and ambulances into police cars and innocent inquiries into indictments and doorbells into threats and mailmen into warrant officers and school teachers into wardens and parents into cross-examiners and friends into traitors and simple office memos into termination papers. The conscience is almost infinitely creative, and the wicked flee where there is no one pursuing, but there ought to be. The conscience makes up for what isn't by creating out of nothing the pursuers we need to have to bring us to justice and repentance and reconciliation. Forgiveness with people we've wronged. A guilty conscience creates pursuers where there are none unless you drown it with alcohol or numb it with drugs or blast it with constant loud music and constant escapes from solitude or endless denials, it isn't there, it isn't conscience, it doesn't count, it's not important. I can live without talking to them until you go so far in hardening yourself against this God-given voice that it ceases and you can no more hear the steps of God in the garden. And that is a dreadful place to Woe to the wicked who can no longer hear the steps of God in the garden or the doorbell or the whistle or the flashing red lights. Woe to you if you no longer fear, because then it's probably over. There is a sin that is unto death. And I do not say that you should pray for that sin. And it is the last sin that is committed before you can no longer hear the voice of conscience. That's the unforgivable sin. May God not let it happen to you. Yield. Yield. And get it right. That's what the blood of Jesus is for, and that's what reconciliation between brothers and sisters is all about. Just a word about the righteous. Who are they? The righteous, on the other hand, are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. Who are the righteous? Who is it that's bold as a lion? Let me give you two answers. One comes from the Old Testament, the Psalm 32. I'm going to choose Psalm 32. And another comes from Martin Luther, an illustration of somebody who was lion-hearted, who was bold as a lion because he was righteous before God. The reason I choose Psalm 32 to give an answer is because it's in the Old Testament. And I knew that if I had jumped over to Romans to give it, which I would love to do, and I'm going to let Martin Luther do, 
Uh, somebody might say, yeah, but that's just New Testament righteousness. This is in the Old Testament. What was Old Testament righteousness? So I'm going to take Psalm 32, and I choose it consciously because it's quoted in Romans 4. And the reason it's quoted in Romans 4 is because righteousness in the Old Testament and righteousness in the New Testament are one righteousness. Justification is by faith from the beginning to the end of history. If Adam was saved, it was by justification by faith. And so the last person who will ever live in this age, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham was reckoned righteous through his faith. Now, let me read to you Psalm 32 so that you can catch on to the definition of righteous, the righteous people in the Old Testament. How blessed, starting right at the beginning, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. There it is. That's what Paul quotes in Romans 4. That's justification stated negatively. Blessed and happy and saved and in eternal life is the one whose sins are covered and whose iniquities simply are not counted in the courtroom of heaven. Oh, that's New Testament glorious justification by faith. If you say, whoa, where do you get faith? I get it from the end of the psalm. Let's see who these righteous ones are whose iniquities are not imputed to them. Verse 10, starting in the middle of the verse. He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy. All you upright in heart. Now, reading backwards, this is the package in Psalm 32. The righteous ones are the people who trust in the Lord and not in themselves and their own merit and their own deeds and their own righteousness. They trust in the Lord and his mercy and his steadfast kindness. And then they are the ones who, according to verses 1 and 2, have their sins covered and their iniquities are not imputed to them. They simply are not counted because they trust in the Lord. Now, that's who the righteous are in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everywhere in this universe. The righteous are people who trust in the Lord. And bank on Jesus Christ for everything they have in need. And they are as bold as a lion. If you can have that kind of boldness with God like Martin Luther had, so that you know as you look the almighty, holy, infinitely wise and beautiful God in the face, you know he imputes no iniquity to you, you will be as lion-hearted as can be with men. Fear with men is rooted in the fear of not being right with God. And if you knew God was standing at your right hand with infinite power, with his right hand on your shoulder, you'd be bold. You'd be bold as a lion. Now, I want to take Martin Luther as an example of that. I hope we've all heard of Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther was a reformer back in the 1500s, and he stood against a massive empire-wide system of abuses of the gospel, things like indulgences where you paid money to get people out of purgatory so they could go to heaven, plus your own sins, things like that. Made his hair stand on end when he discovered the gospel. But he wasn't always that way. He was a monk at first who was troubled and oppressed by a guilty conscience and he couldn't get right with God. And in the fall of 1515, he was lecturing on the book of Romans at the University of Wittenberg. And something happened that was the most important event of his life. And I want to read it to you in his own words. Night and day. Oops, I jumped in the middle. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner in conscience troubled And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet. In greater love, this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, I prayed this morning that when I read that, somebody's heart would be open to the gospel. Because that's how John Wesley got saved. John Wesley was a religious person, even did missionary work before he was converted. And one night he went to a a meeting of the Moravians. And all they did was read the preface to Romans from Martin Luther's commentary. And he got saved. He said, there was a strange warming to my heart. And I was never the same man again. There is something about this declaration of the righteousness of God made over to us through faith that has power unto salvation. If you felt something happening in you, fan that flame with prayer right now. Lest Satan come and pluck it up and just send you home to watch the NBA playoffs. Which is okay. But not if it robs you of glory. 
1521, the lion-heartedness came out. His whole life was one of incredible courage. Let me close with one illustration of his boldness. It was uh, the fall of 1521. It was in the city of Worms. Charles, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, biggest empire since Charlemagne, was there in the cathedral. Frederick the Wise, the local governor, was there. The bishop, the archbishop of Trier, was there named Eck. And in a room this size, at least, it was filled with lords and nobles, every one of them against Martin Luther, and all of them having the capacity to sentence him to death for heresy and treason if he did not recant his criticisms of the Holy Catholic Church. Eck said, Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And first in German, and then they asked him to repeat it in Latin so that it could go down in the official register, he responded like this. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. The righteous are as bold as a lion. They are as bold as a lion because they are righteous in Christ. They look into the face of God and they see a smile which imputes to them no iniquity, but rather makes him who knew no sin to be sin, that they might become the righteousness of God. And standing clothed with the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, they are as bold as a lion before God and before men. And my prayer for us in these days as a church is that God, by the gospel, by the gospel of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith, might deliver us from fear of God and fear of men and make us valiant for the truth in this city. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, make it happen. Let not these be the words of a mere man, I pray. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, make divine appointments today. Bring people into life today. Deliver people from the bondage of fear today. For your great name's sake, I pray. Amen.